Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org by clicking the donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. So Maddie and I are co-facilitating this group. Um, and the way that we've been doing is we switch off on Wednesdays, but we've decided that we want to do a deep dive into various topics. And we're actually in a three-month series here on the three marks of existence. And Maddie and I will co-facilitate together on the first one, kind of an introduction. Then she handled last week, and you missed out because she's much better than I am. And then I do this week on something else around the topic. And then we'll get together again next week together and co-facilitate, and that's, that's a lot of fun. And what we're doing is, like I said, this is three months on the three marks of existence, which I'll talk about in a second. So the first month is the first mark or one of the, one of the three marks. And you can probably guess second month, second mark. It's not that tough. Um, so the three marks of existence are uh, that all skandhas, all conditioned things, everything other than, I guess, your basic elements, um, and even them, really, are anicca, often translated as impermanent. I translate it as entropy. Everything tends to fall apart. That's not what we're talking tonight. Second one is all sankaras, all stuff, is unsatisfactory, imperfect, unstable, creates dissatisfaction. Yay, you get that one. And then the third one is that Dharma's things do not have an abiding essence. So for people, that means we don't have a permanent soul that doesn't change. Okay, a little different than some other religions around town. Um, for things, it means that it will, no matter what it is, it does not have an essence. It changes. It is impermanent. So, Maddie and I introduced together the concept of dukkha. And then last week she talked about, I don't know who all was there, the second arrow. In other words, the way that our mind will make things tougher on ourselves. So something bad happens, and then I talk about it in my own head. And that increases the pain. Somebody cuts me off in traffic, they cut me off in traffic. Enlightened being would just let it go at that. But no, I'm like, what a jerk. Probably from the north or Southern California. I mean, awful people, you know, and this is terrible and you know you start telling those stories about that person and if you're of a certain mindset it can go so out of control that you decide you got to pull a gun and shoot at somebody 
mean, this happens, right? So that is that second arrow, and it can be very significant. That's where most of the suffering comes uh, with that sort of dukkha. It's not the event itself. It's the stuff we create around it. Um, <clears throat> and then the third you know, type of dukkha, which I'm talking about, uh, so there's the dukkha dukkha, and then there's the sankara dukkha, and then I'm going to talk about the vaparanama dukkha, which is, as I said, time, and things fall apart, and that creates pain. So, a little background on dukkha in general. Um, I tend to say dukkha. I don't say suffering. I don't say other things because the Pali term dukkha has a lot of different uses, and it's used a lot more than any one word in English. So I think it may be useful for us to just get used to hearing and using that term dukkha so that we don't bring a lot of assumptions about what it means. Um, <clears throat> but I think that there are some good explanations out there. And a really wonderful teacher is Bhikkhu Bodhi. Some of you may have read some of his books. They're awesome. He describes dukkha as uneasiness or suffering. And he says, the Pali word dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it means something deeper than pain and misery. It refers to a basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives. The lives of all but the enlightened. Sometimes this unsatisfactoriness erupts into the open as sorrow, grief, disappointment, or despair. But usually it hovers at the edge of our awareness as a vague, unlocalized sense that things are never quite perfect, never fully adequate to our expectations that they should be. Anybody ever feel that? Not just me. So like I said, dukkha dukkha, shit happens. Viparanama dukkha, frustration that pleasant things turn unpleasant. That unpleasant things don't go away fast enough. That time marches on and we all get old. And unless we die, we also get sick. But old, we are of a nature to get old, we are of a nature to get sick, and we are of a nature to die. Again, sorry to break it to you. Um, but these are things we don't like to think about. Why don't we like to think about them? Because they are unpleasant. But if we don't address them, they just lay on the sidelines, like Bodhi, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, that small voice saying, this isn't how I wanted it. Um, now, that, like I said, this is Sankara Dukkha. Um, and Sankara means literally mental formations. So it's where these mental formations meet the passage of time and we start thinking about these things. Time itself is not the enemy. Change itself is not the enemy. It's how we work with it. And so as we work with it unskillfully, suffering comes up. 
but we can do something about that. So, um, and, and I'm kind of giving what Maddie was talking about last time, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But just to give an example of how the mind influences us, uh, I saw this documentary, some of you may have seen it, of um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. Has anybody seen this? It's pretty cool. I think it's on Netflix or one of those. And they just hang out and they're just laughing the whole time and cracking each other up. But during this, they were kind of talking some of the background and, and the person who was interviewing them studies joy and suffering and how to relieve it. And he gives this example of they did PET scans on monks. And what they did is they put a wristband on them and incredibly hot water would flow through it so that it would induce pain. Apparently they don't shock people anymore, they do the hot water thing. And they studied their brain waves as this happened. And then they did the monks and then they did control group. Regular people, no background in meditation. And they tracked the difference. Normal people, no background, what happened is they would be told, you're about to get pain. And their pain receptors would go off. And the parts of their brain that dealt with pain would be flashing. And then the pain would hit and it would jump up. And then the pain would actually stay. And then, you know, it would last for about 10 seconds. And then they tell them, you're going to have the pain again. And it would go up and then it would stay. They did the monks. They said, your pain's going to come on in about 10 seconds, flat line. Pain would hit, whoop, and then immediately go back down, flat line. So the way that they felt pain was completely different. The pain was there in the moment, then it was gone. The pain was there, the dukkha dukkha was there. The dukkha dukkha of the pain is going to be there. The other stuff, voluntary. It can be trained to be lessened. So you can also see these three types of dukkha as relating to the three marks themselves. So you've got dukkha dukkha, which relates to dukkha, right? Bad stuff happens. So we have bad stuff about bad stuff, just is. Then we have dukkha about the anicca, which is the other mark of existence, that time you know, goes on, entropy, impermanence. And we have this pain about impermanence. And then we have, remember, the third mark was that there is no essential being. There's no essence to things. But we want there to be. We think of things as having essential beings. And as we think, okay, this is something I can hold on to. It has a nature. I know what this is. And then it isn't that anymore. As change kicks in, we have that pain, right? So that's the other type of dukkha. And other than those three types of dukkha, I can't think of any suffering that I've ever experienced that doesn't fit into one of those three categories. Now that doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive either. You can have all three at once. And I have all three at once on a regular basis. Um, I get hit with that arrow. Ouch. Dukkha, dukkha. This is not what I had planned for my afternoon. I'm supposed to be doing something fun. This is not fun. Now I've got to go to the emergency room. This sucks. 
Viparanama, uh, I can never pronounce it. You know that one, uh, Viparanama Dukkha. And then we have the third one, which is I get upset because this wasn't fair. Who the hell is shooting arrows around this day and age? Come on, people, get a gun like everybody else. I can have all three at the same time. And each of these is actually tied to what is called craving or tanha in the Pali, is the Pali term. We have three types of craving. One is for sense experiences. So I like things that are pretty. I hate things that are ugly. I like the smell of that incense. I don't like smell other, the smell when I have to pick up my dog's poop, right? So we want the nice stuff and we don't want the ugly stuff. We have a craving to become. I want to be, I want to live, I want to exist. I want to write the greatest novel ever written so that people a million years from now will know that I was here. I want to continue on. I want to have children so that they can bear my name, you know, whatever it is, right? And there's actually the craving to stop being. This one we don't always talk about as much, but you ever just, like you're so embarrassed, I wish I could die. You're so burnt out, you just wish you could roll up in bed and not be. And the interesting thing about all of this is that all of those cravings lock us in to what in Buddhism is called becoming, creating a self. And it's a false self, but it's a self. I am Roy because I want. You know, some of you may have talked to each other and said, oh, tell me about yourself. Oh, I'm Roy. I'm, I, I like to dance. I like to sing. I like to go to concerts. We define ourselves by our cravings. What do I like? We define ourselves by our hatreds. I hate olives. I hate my obnoxious neighbor. It's how I define myself. And we define ourselves by what we want to end. I just don't want to be. And oddly enough, that ceasing to not be creates more of an identity of that's who I am. That's the place I'm at. And it's just building up that identity that in the end creates more suffering. So we'll be talking more about these three types of craving in a bit. But let me introduce you to a couple, Aaron and Bailey. Sounds like a liquor actually, now that I say that out loud. So <clears throat> Aaron and Bailey are married. They've been married five years. They have a child also androgynously named Chris. And when Aaron and Bailey first met and fell in love and got married, they were head over heels, madly in love with each other. Aaron was working at an architectural firm, coming up, starting at an entry level, but doing well. Bailey was getting their MBA. 
and they just spent every spare moment together. Now, five years later, Aaron is still with the architectural firm, uh, but is working part-time to raise Chris. And Bailey went to work for a consulting firm. Are you with me now? Are you following the story here? We've got Aaron, we've got Bailey, architect, MBA. Got the MBA, went to work for a consulting firm, and is spending all day traveling in conference rooms, trapped, doing crap. Got it? They're both feeling isolated, lonely, wondering what the other person is doing, and absolutely certain that the other person's life is better than theirs. Anybody ever know anybody like this? Anybody ever have this experience? So <clears throat> they're both just falling apart from each other. What happened? Well, I have a proposal here. Aaron doesn't exist anymore. And Bailey doesn't exist anymore. Not the Aaron and Bailey that were there. We've now got Aaron five years later. Aaron Prime or Aaron version three zillion and eight because every moment Aaron changed. Every moment Aaron became somebody different. They, how, they, how Aaron interplays with the world, sees themselves, sees Bailey, has changed. Every moment of every day. So Bailey is no longer married to Aaron. In fact, Bailey doesn't exist either. Same thing for Bailey. So we now have Bailey Prime and Aaron Prime married to each other, but Aaron and Bailey are dead. They're gone, don't exist, as if they never were. And so you have two people who aren't connecting because they weren't the people who got married. Change. We get married, we get educations, we get jobs, we make these decisions. And in our mind, we think this is how it's going to be forever. And it's not. Or it's always going to be better. I remember I um, have a dear friend, and she was, started at my firm, and I was sort of a mentor. And we were talking one day, and she was a first year, and I said, I know you want to make partner and I know you think it's all gonna be awesome, this is as good as it gets. It will not get better. It will be different. There will be different things that are good. There will be different things that are bad, but it will never be better than this. And she's told me a couple times now that I was absolutely right. All those goals, we think, Bailey Prime is gonna be so much better than Bailey. Bailey Prime is just different than Bailey. But we cling. The Paranama, this type of dukkha, literally means change for the worse. Later on, it was translated and became known as ruin. What do we mean by ruin? As in it's no good anymore. 
I had the best orange and I had one just identical to it and I stuck it in the, free, in the fridge and I'm gonna have that orange later and I'm so looking forward to it, but I forgot about it. And I pull it out and it's got mold all over it and it's ruined. Time ruined my orange. I loved Bailey. Bailey was awesome. Why can't they just be Bailey anymore? I love Bailey now, but Bailey is going to get old and sick and eventually die, and that will make me sad. I don't like this. Let me quote Joseph Goldstein because it's always a good idea to quote Joseph Goldstein. The, if you don't know Joseph, he's great. Read his books. The second way we experience dukkha, the unsatisfying, unreliable nature of things, is through the direct and increasingly refined perception of their changing nature. It is said that many people have become enlightened by hearing just this one short teaching. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. But because this statement is so glaringly obvious, we often ignore or overlook its deep implications. Although we may not always feel this flow of incessant change as suffering, we still come to realize that nothing can be counted on to bring lasting fulfillment precisely because nothing lasts. This great truth of change inevitably leads us to times of association with what we don't want and separation from what we do. And these situations in turn often condition resistance to the unpleasant things that come and clinging to the pleasant ones. We can't minimize this sort of pain. A lot of these talks you'll see examples of, you know, Aaron and Bailey, and that's serious stuff. I think the first session I was talking about my Jaguar, which by the nature of a Jaguar will fall apart all the time. And it's an 89 Jaguar, so it really falls apart all the time. And that change causes me pain, not just in the pocketbook. But there's greater pain as well, and we have to be willing to acknowledge that. I remember being listening to a Dharma talk, a room much like this one. And at the end of it, a gentleman raised his hand and said, I just can't get over my pain. My daughter was kidnapped and killed. And I will always have that pain. And that's true. I do not want to whitewash this. I do not want to pretend that this is easy. It is not. Pain is real. Dukkha dukkha is real. Having a loved one die is dukkha, and it will pain you. So what we see, though, is to how, what degree do we cling to the pain? To what degree does our identity begin to emerge out of pain in a way that isn't healthy and helpful? I remember 
for years, I defined myself based on my divorce. It was ugly. It was awful. I defined myself based on my dislike for my ex-wife. It's a terrible way to define yourself. Just awful. I don't suggest it. So I'm not saying that pain is not there. What I'm saying is we have to own it. We have to acknowledge it and then see how much of it is unhealthy. And I'm not going to tell someone who's lost a young child, get over it. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is experience it and see, are we working with it in a skillful way? Is there something that we can let go of? And for God's sake, don't judge yourself based on your response to the pain. This stuff is 2,500 years old. 2,500 years ago, they were talking about how we create our own pain. This is not new and you are not immune. So do not expect yourself to be perfect or to not feel pain or just get over it. Feel your pain while you feel it. And then work with it of, can I let go of some of this identity? And honestly, Letting go of that identity can be harder than letting go of the pain itself. Like I said, it took me over a decade to let go of the pain of my divorce because I had identified myself with it. How silly, what a waste of time, but how totally predictable and unavoidable. Both can be true. We know, however, that this experience will change. We also know pain because I know that I will change. Even the good stuff creates pain. I love this sunset, but right in the middle of enjoying this gorgeous sunset, I know that if I watch it long enough, even if the sun stopped moving, even if the earth stopped its rotation and I could just stare at this sunset for an hour, I give myself five minutes and I'm bored because I know I will change. I know I will get tired of it. Suffering arises from our own change. There's this deep sense that somehow the world is unsatisfactory. And so we can respond to that with a couple ways. We say, why bother? Why bother worrying with it? Why bother with pain? I'm going to try hedonism, sex, drugs, rock and roll, man. And it works, I mean, for a while, it really does. This is the path of addiction, right? And addiction feels good for a while until it doesn't. For each thing that we experience, <clears throat> the Buddha spoke of it having three things to think about. It has a benefit, it has a risk, and it has an escape from that risk. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, pick any of those three, you know? It has a benefit, it feels good, maybe it's an escape. Uh, you know, Andrew, are still currently for the next week, 
you know, guiding teacher here was an addict. And he says, thank God for meth. It saved my life because I probably would have committed suicide if it weren't for the benefit of feeling good for a moment. He's no longer doing meth, by the way, so, and he'll tell you this himself. Um, so there can be a benefit, but there's a risk. Addiction, getting lost in it, building our identities around it. But there's an escape from the risk. And that escape is just to see it. We don't cling to the pain. We don't cling to the, to the thing we want. We allow it to rise and pass. Sometimes when we're clinging, it will come up in different ways. It can be sadness, anger, frustration. You know, take a moment. How does it come up for you when you cling? When something is going away and I really want it, for me, it tends to be anger and irony. You may have your, you know, your mileage may vary. That third type of clinging <clears throat> is annihilation, burnout, depression, all of that. I do want to make a quick note. There's a bit of a misunderstanding. If you go out on the interwebs and elsewhere, they will tell you Buddhism is about annihilating the self, killing yourself off. No, it's not. I just got done telling you that's clinging. We're trying not to annihilate ourselves. Nibbana or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it is not getting rid of the self. Nibbana is realizing the self is not there to begin with. That's all. So you're not killing anything off. You're realizing that it's not there as a fixed permanent thing. Yes, there's this moment and there's me and Roy is really here and there really is this. But Roy has no essence, nothing that's carrying over. So Roy in an hour will be in a different state of mind, will be a different person than Roy this moment. Which brings me to time. Because you can't have change without time, right? Time is what marks change. And we will talk more about time when we talk about anatta, that no permanent fixed self, that no soul piece of this. Because, listen to this, time arises from the self, and the self arises from time, which is a weird concept, but we will explain it, and it actually does make a lot of sense. So that's next month, two weeks. Time arises from the self. As we crystallize and reify ourselves, time arises. And as time arises, we create ourselves. Talk for another day. But we are in this moment, and we look to the past, and we look to the future, right? But we can't live in the past, literally. I mean, I may have a lot of memories of it, and I may sort of be living in the past, um, but the past, I cannot move backwards in time. And I'm traveling through time at exactly one second per second. So I can't jump ahead two seconds in the next second. So as we look back, there's this membrane, there's this flat edge of the past. 
and there's a flat edge of the future and whenever we look at the future and we try and project onto it it just bounces back off of this membrane like a drum imagine the skin of a drum you hit it and it just reverberates but it just comes right back at you because you can't get through that into the future faster than one second per second and you can't go into the past so when we look in the past it just resonates back at us and creates kind of a of a, a feedback loop and that feedback loop creates pain so I think damn Aaron was awesome when we got married Aaron isn't so awesome anymore you're looking past and then that creates a resonance well you know I hardly connect with Aaron anymore I bet they're having an affair oh my god they're having an affair it resonates back and then it bounces back again oh my god Chris is gonna be you know in a broken home I'm gonna be a terrible parent this is all awful right we're all making it up why are we making it up because we're projecting into the past and we project into the future Chris is gonna be in a broken home life is gonna be terrible none of that is happening now it's all made up the more we leave this moment the more we create pain from not being present or as my hero Jim Carrey says if you aren't in the moment you are either looking forward to uncertainty or back to pain and regret this applies even with goals like I said my my friend that I said it's not gonna get better than this it can't because everything is experienced in this moment the future can never be better or worse than now because it doesn't exist thinking that I will do something in the future that will rock does not make the present moment better or worse it just distracts you from it and it makes it impossible for you to find the beauty and joy in this moment so how do we work with all of this or as when we spoke a couple weeks ago first question we got which I made Maddie answer because I wasn't going to touch it is um, if the goal of Buddhism is to end suffering how can it end suffering if suffering is built right into the system if everything is suffering and it's a fantastic question which is why I made Maddie answer it. Um, but what we're saying is that dukkha is built into the system, right? Dukkha, dukkha is always going to be there. But we can lessen the other two types of dukkha, the stuff where our brain gets caught up in it. Or as Kenji Miyazawa says, we must embrace pain and burn it as the fuel for our journey. We take the pain and we use it. We use it to learn. We use it to grow. We cannot be on that edge of growth if we are not experiencing discomfort. Dukkha Dukkha is hard to avoid. 
the arrows will come. But we do not have to be slaves to craving, to tanha. We do not have to be slaves to time. We do not have to be slaves to that second arrow. Can we allow ourselves to let go of that pain, that habit, that need to maximize that pain? Can we let go of that need to push into the past and into the future? Can we let go of all of that and just be present with the dukkha? The minimal amount of dukkha that we have to be with. Can I simply watch this arise and pass without grabbing onto it? Can I wish my obnoxious neighbor good health, well-being, happiness? Can Aaron Prime fall in love with Bailey Prime again? I mean, think about it. You've got two lonely, isolated people. Why not take care of each other? Why not fall in love with each other all over again? Why not send that text or give that phone call and say, I'm lonely, I miss you, let's talk. Let's throw out who we were, let's throw out all of our history, and let's just fall in love this moment. There's a story of the, I'll end with this story and then conclude, um, but there's a story of a monastery. There was one really obnoxious asshole in this monastery and drove all the other monks crazy. He did, he lied stole, undercut other people, was spreading rumors and gossip. Nobody could stand him. Finally, one day, everybody gave him such grief, he said, screw it, I'm out of here, and he left. Everybody celebrated. The abbot ran after him, hunted him down, begged him to come back, and when he refused, bribed him to come back. Because the abbot knew that it was from the obnoxious asshole that you learned. He was their Buddha. He was their teacher. Or as Naval Ravikant says, sit with the pain until it passes and you will be calmer for the next one. So one last quote from Goldstein because it's always good to quote Goldstein in these things. On the conceptual level, we understand the changing nature of things, Anicca, quite easily. But in our lives, how often are we living in anticipation of what comes next? As if that will finally bring us to some sort of completion or fulfillment. When we look back over our lives, what has happened to all those things we were looking forward to? Where are they now? This doesn't mean that we should never enjoy ourselves or enjoy different pleasant experiences. It just means we need to realize and remember the very transitory nature of that happiness and to deeply consider what our highest aspirations really are. So what are your highest aspirations? What is the thing you are really wanting to be or to do.
often our highest aspirations involve the least stuff. In fact, often they're negative stuff, getting rid of things that we don't need. The letting go of craving can be a wonderful aspiration. To stay with things exactly how they are and to have the courage to stay with pain so that we don't fall into the additional pain of that second arrow. Stepping back from constant need for more and stepping into this moment, letting go of the need to project into the future or into the past. It is in this moment that we are free from the pain of change because it is a moment that is here and not clinging to the past or the future. One last quote, Ovid, be patient and tough. Someday this pain will be useful to you. <laughs>